Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Hello, storytellers. Today's guest is Isla Morley. She grew up in South Africa and during apartheid, which is a fascinating thing that we'll want to touch base on. She is the child of a British father and a fourth generation South American mother, South African mother. In 1994, she was the youngest magazine editor in all of South Africa. And then there was a life-changing event. She left culture, career, and kin for the man that she loved and moved to California. She has written three amazing books. One is called The Last Blue, Come Sunday, and Above, all of which are award winners. Isla now currently lives in California, but she has lived in amazingly diverse places. She's lived in London, Honolulu, and Cape Town in South Africa. She lives now with her husband, her daughter, and an amazing set of menagerie animals. So Isla, thanks for joining me at the microphone today. Thanks for having me here in the studio, Grace. It's really great to meet you. So what I try to accomplish on the storytellers are a few things, but one of them is the story behind the storyteller. So you were a magazine editor, and then you worked in nonprofits, and then you became a novelist. So what was that journey? Well, I never imagined that I would be a novelist. You know, there are authors that are scribbling away when they're when they're little kids. And I wasn't that person. I grew up in the 70s and 80s in South Africa. Uh, You know, uh, my heritage was British, very stiff upper lip, and we were taught to have very modest expectations for ourselves. So to have a dream of one day writing and publishing a novel wouldn't even enter my headspace. I was touring Europe after I graduated from university um, and I came back to South Africa and I answered a wanted ad for kind of like a Girl Friday was what it was then for this startup publishing company. And they figured out that I could write, not just make coffee. And pretty soon I just started rising up through the ranks. Because we were so short-staffed, I wore many hats. Um, you know, I was writing letters to the editor when I was, in fact, the editor of one of those magazines. (laughs) And um, I I used to write under a couple of pseudonyms, um, male pseudonyms, because the magazine was geared for men, 18 to 30-year-olds, like a, a young man's GQ. And so I was writing things I didn't care about. Um, for example, sex advice for 20-something-year-old men and, oh and dating advice. And although the the work introduced me to a kind of discipline um, and it fostered a curiosity that writers need to have, it was kind of soulless. I felt like, it, you know, any kind of passion for writing was defined by those parameters and it kind of wore down my soul plus all the deadlines and so when I 
moved to California, I realized that I didn't want to write. And so all I wrote for years were letters, airmail letters back to my mother in South Africa. And that was before the internet, uh, if we can remember that far back. <laughs> and, um, and so when, so my heart has always been with helping others. And I had a fantastic opportunity to join an amazing team at the YWCA in Honolulu. And I ran a program called Dress for Success that was working with women that have financial hardships, predominantly women that were coming out of incarceration. And uh, I just, I guess that started to nurture this, um, this empathy that, that writers need, but empathy particularly for women who have gone through incredible struggles. And what I kept seeing in my clients was this resilience and the sense of hope. And that always stuck with me. So when I eventually did get the inspiration to write a book, I had a deep well, and it was nothing at all like writing for a magazine. Instead of wearing away my soul, this really just flooded me with a sense of purpose and meaning. And your books are amazing in how they capture that passion. Before I go there, I just want to say we have a similar uh, connection in that I used to do a lot of volunteering in women's prisons and men's prisons, and Dress for Success was such an important transition piece. So I'm, I'm glad we have that nexus. And your passion is one of the reasons I wanted you on the show, because I've read both Last Blue and Above. I haven't yet had the joy of Come Sunday. But I read a review and it was so, the review was lovely. It said, you write luminous narrative that feeds a fiction addiction. And it was just exactly what I felt when I read your books. You have a way of capturing not only the language, but embedding us quickly into the story. There are many good stories, I feel. But then when I read a book that has both a good story and an incredible use of language, that's where magic happens for me as a reader. And I think you do that. Um, in your book, Above, just give us the framework for that because mostly above takes place below. Yes, Above is what they would call a psychological thriller, although I didn't know I was writing in that genre. It's about a 17-year-old girl who's abducted by a survivalist who is convinced that the apocalypse is imminent. And he takes her into an abandoned Atlas F missile silo circa the Cold War which is one of these engine, engineering marvels. It's on the order of a space station, if you can visualize that plummeting into the depths of the earth. And he's outfitted this to wait out the apocalypse. He's got um, seeds of every kind. He's got archives. But all he needed to round out uh, this um equipment is a fertile young woman with whom he plans to one day seed the new world. And so this is a struggle that Blythe uh, must undergo. And it is really a journey 
about the nature of freedom. Initially, freedom for her is escaping the confines, finding a way to get, get out. And eventually, freedom is about um, how she chooses to think about her situation, how, how she's going to live a life of the mind. And this book was so heavily influenced by Viktor Frankl's landmark book, Man's Search for Meaning, in which yes. he was incarcerated um, and everything had been taken from him, his family, his livelihood, his reputation, almost his hope. And while he was watching people drop every day, drop to their deaths, he understood that the ones that were surviving were those people that were not going to let their captors determine the narrative of their inner being. And so this is a story about how freedom works and about the nature of resiliency, about the power of forgiveness and about the transformation of hope. It, you had me right from the beginning and my heart was pounding the entire time. Just that whole understanding of how she was just walking along and then her life as she knows it ends. So I highly recommend that book. I learned a lot from it. You research like crazy. Well, the the, the research for that was, um, was difficult because I don't have an engineering background and I'm bad at mathematics and schematics and geometry. And what I had to go on were these blueprints of what these missile silos look like. And um, so, so to kind of have a sense of what that would feel like to live in one of those, it's one thing to look at a drawing and kind of figure it out, but the other thing is to allow your imagination to enter that space so that you can bring it to life for a reader. Uh, so that was part of my research. And the other research is um, having to do with Kansas and I, you know, I'm from South Africa, but my husband is from the Midwest. And that that town of Lawrence and Eudora is where he was born and raised. So I was fortunate to take a couple of trips back and um, and have real real life experience um, bringing that environment to life. And you do a similar thing in The Last Blue, which is a fascinating book on so many subjects. I did not know there were blue people. So talk about that in that book. So I didn't know about blue people either. And up until, what, four years ago, I don't think anybody knew about the blue people. Um, I just was one day procrastinating and I was scrolling through the internet and I came across one of these uh, photos, you know, that's obviously clickbait, and it showed a portrait of nine family members long time ago in front of an old wooden cabin in the middle of the woods, and five of these family members were blue and bright blue. And I was just so intrigued that I clicked on that, and it took me to a source article written by Kathy Trost who was commissioned by a now defunct science magazine in 1982, I believe. And uh, she had to scrounge around because there was very little written about them. And she found anecdotes and reports 
And um, and the story that she uncovered for us goes back 200 years ago with Martin Fugit settling on the banks of Troublesome Creek with his brothers and mother and father. Uh, he went to church. A beautiful, pale-skinned, red-headed woman caught his eye. They got married and started a family, and then some of their children started being born blue. And for generations their families, two or three families clustered in isolation in that part of Appalachia in Eastern Kentucky, where there weren't really roads connecting towns and cities. And it, it made it possible that over time that, you know, blue people were not altogether uncommon. So I knew the minute that I saw that this was a medical mystery that nobody had ever heard of. And then, um, just my imagination went crazy. All I wanted to do was write about these blue people. So my story is the imagined telling of the last two blue people that are left, and it takes place in nineteen in the 1930s predominantly. It was so yeah. astonishing to me because I kept on thinking I was reading it wrong. Blue people? I, you know, I thought... I don't know what I thought, but I didn't think that it, it could even be a real thing. So the learning of that and the expression of that was so beautiful. And as you do in all of your writing, there is that luminous narrative. Very early on, you have Haven, um, one of the central characters, and you have these lovely metaphors about these birds that he's caring for. Right in the beginning, you get such a sense of the land. You use a phrase in there that you could hear hear the land sighing. And where does that gift for writing come from? Because as you said, with all due respect, this is not your native heritage or culture. So yes, your husband grew up in Kansas, but where does that luminous narrative come from? Well, you're a writer, so I'm interested to see see whether you agree with me or not because they I've asked myself that question when I when I started writing come Sunday I wrote blind literally I I closed my eyes and I had my fingers on the keyboard and the story just came I kept seeing these unfolding scenes I kept hearing these voices, and I kept having these feelings that were outside of my experience. And I would describe it almost as if I'd put an antenna up into this invisible river that was coursing over my head. And somehow the energy, the, um, the narrative was just coming down. And I felt like a conduit. I felt like one of those mediums that you hear about. Um, that this that the story and these characters showed up and showed me so much, which is not to say that writing uh, isn't grunt work a lot of the time, because it is. Um, there are plenty of places where I get stuck and uh, I, I, I don't get those messages. Um, and uh, when you're talking about some of those phrases, some of them come, some of them just land on the page. 
but then the craft of writing for me is to um, find analogies and metaphors and turns of phrases that describe something everyday in common, but putting it in uh, in a way that feels fresh. So that sometimes is just the rewriting process. And it can even go, you know, you can find those phrases, um, you know, two or three years down the line, or maybe after eight rewrites. So I don't want to sound it like I'm this kind of magical beacon that receives <laughs> these stories. Yeah, I'm well, roll up my sleeves and kind of muck through the, the mud and until I found, you know, kind of clean everything up. Well, it is that combination, right? I love it when it is magical, and that does not happen for me as much as I would like, and certainly not in a whole book uh, the way you say Come Sunday does. But yeah, there is that grunt work. And I think one of the fun things for me in doing the storytellers and being both a fiction and a nonfiction writer and now more solidly grounded in being a novelist is people's perceptions of writers and how we write and that it's not that going back and forth. I interviewed someone recently and they were talking about how they go through a chapter and they check to see if it has all the senses in it. Did I mention something about smell? Did I mention something about sight and touch? I learn from so many of the authors that I have the gift to interview from and with. But if I remember correctly, you started out writing your novels in a closet? I did, because I didn't want anybody to know that I was embarking on such a harebrained idea. And I, you know, um, can be a little bit insecure about things. And the last thing I wanted to do was to tell people and then have them ask me, you know, every every few weeks how the story is going and when am I going to get a publisher. I wanted to give myself absolute freedom to fail. And when we moved back to California, um, my husband was appointed to a, a Methodist church and we had the parsonage to ourselves and um, the only place that I felt like I could write with with freedom to to make mistakes was this closet. So I pushed aside all his pulpit robes and clerical collars, and I set up a little desk in that in that closet. And I and I wrote in secret. My husband knew, and um, but only after a year of writing did I even tell my best friend. I find that writing is the most naked thing I do. It is very hard to let that be a public thing. And even though I strongly believe in beta groups and the importance of having beta groups give us that feedback, I find it very much like I'd like to be in the closet. So I love that that's actually how you started out. You mentioned something too about the freedom to write. And in your books, the two that I have delighted in, I think I've come across that you have some important themes. And I don't, I'm wondering if that ties back to your growing up with apartheid. That theme of freedom, you just talked about the freedom to write, but in the book above, there's freedom. So freedom, being other, being somehow outside, being somehow isolated, are those correct? Did I, did I get that right? I think that, you know, more and more as I go into this journey of writing, I realize 
just how much my upbringing influences not just the stories that I choose to write, but how I approach them and what themes start to emerge. I don't plan a theme. You know, it's only after the story is almost written that these themes become apparent. And um, I guess growing up in South Africa, I got to see how othering takes place. And I got to see it from the uh, perspective of the people who do the othering, the people who um, inflict prejudice and unfairness and stitch together a society that privileges ourselves. So I got to see it from that angle and I got to see the range of prejudice, how it can go from very obvious in your face um, uh, manifestations, you know, um, unimaginable acts of cruelty, institutionalized unfairness, but it also goes to more muted forms where people just kind of don't speak up or speak out against systems of injustice and acts of prejudice. Um, I know what it's like to be um, somebody who speaks out and then um, gets reprimanded for that, but I also know only too well the, um, the experience of staying quiet and being afraid to speak up. Um, and I think also the work that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did uh, for the fall of after the fall of apartheid just left an indelible mark on my psyche. Uh, the way they were able to bring together victim and perpetrator in the same room for um, for women who whose sons had been murdered uh, in, in police custody, uh, for her to stand in front of the man who took her son's life and then to be able to speak her truth and for him to weep and beg for forgiveness and then for her somehow to grant forgiveness and to embrace him and to participate in his transformation. That witness that those people did left a mark on me. So it, any one of my books is going to involve forgiveness. It's going to involve hope and it's going to illustrate, I hope, in some sense, transcendence. And each of your books that I've been gifted to read do just that. And I hope there are many more books. Are you working on anything now? Or is it I in the closet? <laughs> I am in, I'm in the closet. Uh, I've got a bigger office now, but I am in the closet. I'm, I'm working on another story that uh, is also inspired by a true, a true story. This is um, based on a, on a character. And, um, and it's going to take me to new places. It's going to be set in the south of England uh, just prior to the Normandy invasion. So 
But, I, you know, it's early days. I take forever to write a story. I do so as well, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So let's talk quickly about the pets, the menagerie. So we just, uh, like everybody else in quarantine, uh, we just got a little rescue puppy. And we have three cats. Uh, the the Siamese is the sheriff of the house. He, mm -hmm. he does the patrols and puts everybody in line. And then we've got several California desert tortoises. And um, miraculously, uh, um, we've got a couple of babies from a, a an adult female who had a hatch. Uh, she laid a clutch of eggs and one, one of them hatched. So... They're all in hibernation right now, and they're all they've all chosen different rooms in the house in which to hibernate, and we'll see them again at the end of spring. I didn't know that either. So that's another wonderful thing I've learned about uh, today. Isla, where can people find you? Well, everywhere online, I believe, um, um, independent bookstores. Barnes & Noble, brick-and-mortar stores have the paperback that just came out about a month or two ago. And um, they can look for me and on my website, which is islamorley.com. And so worth following and so worth reading. Isla, thank you for being such a great storyteller, and thanks for sharing the mic with me today. Thanks so much for having me. The Storytellers is copyrighted by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks so much for listening. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.